Good morning, everyone. Before I begin, I just want you to know that next week we are starting a new five-week series we've entitled Redeeming Work. Redeeming Work. I'm super excited about this because I'm convinced that if we understand the strategic nature of our work, uh, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a bus driver like the one I just talked to after the last service, a, a teacher, a police officer, or you're in uh, business or medicine or one of the trades, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you understand, if you are clear about the strategic nature of work according to God's word, then you have the potential to make an enormous impact. And together, when you add the hundreds and the thousands of us, we can change the world. You see, according to the Bible, Sunday morning, right now, this time, is the huddle. Your life in the world and at work is the game. We gather that we might scatter and run the play. The plays. Before God and to his glory. And so what I want to do in this series, and I mean it when I say I'm really excited about this, is I want to help you elevate your game at work from a biblical perspective. And what we're gonna do after each and every service during this uh, series, we're gonna commission you and then pray for you in your work. So I want you to be praying for that and let's ask God to do some incredible things. Now today, we are concluding this short post-Easter series we've done on emotions that we've appropriately entitled Losing Control. And today I want to talk about the emotion of envy. There's an old story that goes like this. A group of demons returned one day to Satan because they had failed to do what Satan had demanded that they do. And that was to go to a monk, a monk by the name of Matthew, who had been living peacefully for several years in a cave in the desert. And their assignment was to destroy him, to tempt him. And it didn't work. The demons failed. So they returned to Satan and they say, Satan, you know, we threw everything we could at him. We offered him money, women, wine, comfort. Uh, nothing worked. Satan was livid. He was furious. And he grabbed that group of demons and said, you come with me, I'll show you how to handle this. So they all flew to the cave. And Satan got down and whispered in Matthew's ear, Matthew, your friend Matthias has just been promoted to become the bishop of Alexandria. And they've overlooked you. They've forgotten about you. And later that day, Matthew the monk cursed God and died. Envy. Throughout human history, Envy has been almost universally regarded as potential, potentially deadly. Because unlike love, which seeks the highest good of others, envy resents it, hates it, st 
stews on it and acts to destroy that good in others. Now, for those of you that are here today that are a little less familiar with the Bible, maybe you're trying to check out Christianity, check out the church, I want you to know we're glad you are here. And I also want you to know that the Bible takes this subject very seriously as it should, but yet the Bible, it's surprising to me, surprising to others, how honest and straightforward the Bible is about the problem of envy among God's people. So, for example, as early as Genesis chapter 4, I mean, we're just four chapters into the Bible. Cain is engulfed in brother envy, offering envy, approval envy. And despite God's warnings, Cain murders his brother Abel. Later in Genesis chapter 30, Rachel can't get pregnant. And illustrating both how awful that is for a a, a young wife and how not to handle it, Rachel envies and is resentful towards her sister Rachel, but so envious and so resentful that Rachel in Genesis chapter 30 threatens suicide. Seven chapters later, Joseph's brothers are overwhelmed with envy at Joseph and his dreams. So they sell Joseph into slavery. And this is just the first book of the Bible. And it was written in a culture where family was just about everything. Yet envy in Genesis is destroying one family after another. No wonder James 3.16 says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every, every evil practice. So here's what I want to do today. Today I want to look at one of the most famous, uh, arguably um, one of the most tragic envy stories in all of the Bible and, and really all of literature. And that's the horrific envy of Israel's first king, Saul. So if you have your Bible, grab your Bible, turn on your Bible. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. And let's go back deep into the Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's page 286 in the Bibles in front of you if you're accessing it that way. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18. When the men, that is the men of Israel, were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, now that would be Goliath, that story's in the preceding chapter, the women came out of all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul. Saul was the king, was singing and dancing with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul, the king, was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. 
Saul had a spear in his hand. Now, if a king is sitting around the palace with a spear in his hand, you know he's not having a good day. He had this spear in his hand, and what did he do? Well, he hurled it at David, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he, that is David, did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Now skip down a couple of paragraphs. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Here the plot thickens. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul offered, ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you. That was a lie. And his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. Now in the next couple of paragraphs, David's a poor man, a, a nobody. Saul sets a crazy, brutal bridal price. The bridal price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Now let's go down, pick it up in verse 26. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed not 100 but 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. Now you think scalping is gross. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid and remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now skip down to 19, the first sentence. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Now bounce over to verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it, to kill him in the morning. I want to do two things. We've looked at this passage before here uh, at Wheaton Bible, but this morning I want to come at it just a, a, a little differently. I want to begin by talking about what envy is, and I want you to see the progression of envy, envy how it progresses. Then I want to ask the, the question, why is envy such a struggle for us in the church today? And I want to conclude by talking about the cure. So what is envy? Well, go back to verse 8 in chapter 18. Envy is thinking, what about me? More specifically, why not me? We read in verse 8, Saul thought, okay, they're saying all this about David, and so Saul thought he, and then we read, but me. Envy is that move, he but me. Saul cannot say, man, I'm so thankful for David. I'm so glad that David killed Goliath the giant. I am so thankful to be leading this country and, and what David has done. This is a wonderful moment. No, Saul can't do that. He makes it all about himself. Envy is he but me, she but me. 
Why he and not me? Why she and not me? Because envy is about both what someone else has and what you lack. <laughs> so uh, we think he doesn't deserve that job. That job's better than mine. He's not as competent as me. Or, or we think, why are her kids so perfect? Mine aren't like that. She's not that good a mom. Envy screams, what about me? And by the way, the greater your insecurity or the greater your pain, the greater your susceptibility to envy. Now today, we talk about envy in all sorts of ways. We talk about clothes envy, house envy, car envy, hair envy, toenail envy, I don't know. <laughs> and really, it's been this way from birth, right? I mean, what two-and-a-half-year-old doesn't really battle with toy envy? No, Johnny, don't kill Sarah. You see, envy in the Bible as we see here with Saul, is a big deal because it's fundamentally sinister. It's a feeling of ill will toward another. Coveting is wanting what somebody else has. Envy is resenting it because you don't have it and you don't think they deserve it. So Saul hears these women singing. David has his ten thousands. And he thought, but me? They're singing, I only have my thousands. So envy is being unable to enjoy another's ten thousand because of comparison, and it's also being unable to enjoy your thousand because of resentment. Uh, envy is this toxic mix of comparison and resentment. They go together. But what makes envy difficult is envy is like a terrorist cell. It operates in the shadows, in, in the dark. It's, it's elusive. And, and we don't even see it in our own lives. We're, we're not aware of it in our own lives. It just comes in flashes, sometimes in little ways, sometimes in medium size, sometimes in, in, in bigger ones. But just like that terrorist cell, envy always robs us of joy. It's self-destructive. So envy is the male co-worker that resents and badmouths the female co-worker because she got the bigger raise. And envy doesn't make him happy or happier. Envy is a 33-year-old single female who will never go to a friend's wedding, will never go to a baby shower because it makes her angry, upset. Envy doesn't make her happier. We envy people who have it better according to how we calculate better. And envy is this toxic mix of self-pity, comparison, and resentment. Now that's the psychological side of envy that leaks out here 
in 1 Samuel 18. But there's another side I want you to see, and that is the theological side. So look again at verse 8. Look at the last sentence in verse 8. Saul is thinking, and from that to, or I, no, Saul, he thought, what more can he get but the kingdom? What more can David get but the kingdom? Do you see what's going on? Back in chapter 15, the prophet Samuel had told Saul because of Saul's disobedience that he was going to lose the kingdom. The kingdom was being taken from him. It hadn't happened yet, but it was going to happen. And then Samuel told Saul, and the kingdom is going to be given to a neighbor of yours. Somebody Saul would know. So when Saul hears these women singing, Singing about David, it clicks. The light goes on in his head. And he realizes that David is going to be the next king. David is the one Samuel was talking about. And Saul's heart is gripped with fear. Envy is the root. Fear is the fruit. Now this is the other side of envy. Because envy is a functional denial of the sovereign reign and rule of God in your life. It's a denial of the plan of God, uh, uh, the, the sovereignty of God, um, the, the, the will of God in your life that always involves uh, success and setbacks, good and bad. And for Saul, the bad was brought on because of his disobedience. The throne wasn't David's uh, to get. It wasn't Saul's to hold on to. It was God's to give, God's uh, to take. Now hear me. If God intended for your life to be easy, if God intended for your days to be easy, they would be. They would be. But no, God in his infinite grace and his infinite wisdom intends for your days to be tools of refinement, testing. So that you will become holy. Because God is after your holiness, not your personal definition of happiness. And God will use setback and failure and, and pain and rejection and loss to make you like his son. Envy is the opposite of contentment. But ultimately, envy is treason. It's the rejection of the reign. It's attempting to overthrow the rule of God. Because contentment is born in confidence in the sovereignty of God. Look at how Paul states it here in Philippians 4. Paul says, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in one. He goes on and says, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. So contentment is rooted in confidence in God. Envy is the antithesis of contentment. And where contentment is belief, envy is unbelief. That's the theological side. Now let's go on. 
What I want you to see here is this fascinating progression of envy. There's three main steps. Step number one, we've already talked about beginning in, in, in verse eight, because envy starts with this toxic mix of self-pity. I mean, Saul had been told he'd lost the kingdom. A comparison, God is blessing David, not Saul. And resentment, I mean, Saul hurls a spear at David. You don't want a king to do that to you, right? Uh, so there's all this going on. That's how it starts. Uh, then, uh, step two, stage two, begins in verse 20, when we're told uh, Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. So now what happens is this mix of self-pity and comparison and resentment moves to a full-blown covert operation to murder David. Because Saul set a bridal price that would force David to go to war. And, da and Saul was convinced that the Philistines would kill David. But it was all secretive. It was all covert. Now step three is chapter 19. We see it in verse 1. We see it in verse 11. And it all changes. Call, Saul calls a cabinet meeting. And he orders everyone to kill David. And now it's public. Now it's out in the open. You better believe it would be front page headlines the next day in the papers. Now this is stunning. It's lunacy. Saul knows that David has been chosen by God. Saul knows that David is wildly popular in Israel. But suddenly it doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because more than anything else in life, Saul wants to be the king. Hear me. He needs to be the king. He has to be the king. How come? Because of a deep, deep insecurity, inferiority that was revealed back in chapter 15 when Samuel, speaking to Saul, said, Saul, you have been small in your own eyes. In other words, on the inside, you feel insecure. And what happens when we feel small on the inside is we all, all of us act big on the outside. So Saul needed to be seen as a big shot. He needed to be seen as in control. And the throne had now become the most important thing in his life because it was a source of identity, a source of significance. And he will oppose God and everyone else in Israel to keep the throne, to hold on to his idol. That's what you do when you're small in your own eyes, when you're insecure. Saul is willing to jeopardize the very thing he wants the most, approval, the approval of people, for what he thinks he can't live without, and that is the throne. And he's trying to control what he can't control. Now this story is nothing but 3,000 years old. That's crazy. This story is 3,000 years old. Uh, but it's incredibly up-to-date, an incredible up-to-date depiction of 
insecurity, idolatry, addiction, codependency, you fill in the blank, and the bondage resident in the human heart. Uh, idolatry and addiction, as I've said over and over, is taking a good thing. Being the king, having the throne is a good thing, and turning it into an ultimate thing. You can't live without it. This is a woman that can't live without a man. This is a man that can't live without pornography. Or a certain car, or a certain job, eating at certain restaurants. This is a student that will do anything to be liked. You cling to your throne, your idol. Saul started out so well. He was the first king of Israel. But he ends up becoming one of the seven suicides in the Bible. Because left unchecked, there is always a progression to sin. It always leads to bondage. Oh, I'll just look a little at this, or I'll I'll just dabble in that. Uh, Satan is not out to coddle you. Satan is out to destroy you. Guard your heart and watch your envy closely. Now, that's the progression. Now, uh, why is this such a problem for us as God's people? Well, I want to digress just a little. I'll, I'll bring this back. But let's jump to the New Testament. Look at Luke chapter 14. Jesus is speaking. Look at what he says. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. Jesus is talking about having a party. If you do, they may invite you back, and you will not, so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, there it is, a party. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Some of us on staff have been reading a wonderful book by J.D. Greer entitled Gaining by Losing. Look at what he says about this passage. Talk about an awkward moment. Jesus looked around and says to those gathered, when you have a party, don't invite these people. Everybody knows you're just inviting them so they'll invite you back to the parties. That's really what Jesus is saying. What Jesus counseled here was not just a little awkward. It would have been economic suicide parties like these were as much a business function as they were social engagements. Rich people would invite rich friends to their parties with the hope that these new friends would in turn return the favor, allowing each to expand their networks. The rule was simple. Be generous to those who can be generous to you in return. Think of relationships as investments. It's painful. And steward them wisely. Jesus told them instead to invite people who would never be able to return the favor, people who have no perks to offer or friends whom you want to meet. Then and only then Jesus said, you will be repaid in the resurrection. And Greer goes on to say, Jesus isn't trying to regulate your parties. Jesus is trying to challenge you about what your mission in life is. And he's implying two things. His people, people that know Jesus Christ, understand they are called into full-time ministry. 
And banquet and party in Luke 14 is a metaphor for ministry. So that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're called into full-time ministry. And the reward for your ministry is not in this life, it's in the life to come. But the second implication is the party that you and I throw is that other people might know Jesus. That you might use your gifts, your talents, your work, uh, your home as a platform so other people might come to know Christ, especially the neediest, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. So if you are a Christian, if you are here today and you know Jesus Christ, your job isn't merely to invite people to church. A lot of people today in our culture won't come to church. Uh, your job is to see your life as a party, a banquet, a dinner, a luncheon that you continue to throw because you know you are the primary means God uses to testify to the people around you. 39 of the 40 miracles in the book of Acts occur outside the walls of the church. Why should it surprise us? That one of the main ways God wants to manifest his power is out in the world through us. The party is out there. In your neighborhoods, in your offices, wherever you are, whatever you are doing. And it's a party you throw for the people around you, especially the neediest, the least reached, the most uh, vulnerable. Now do you see how this relates to envy? Envy is such a problem for us in the church because we have lost sight of our goal. Our goal isn't to accumulate more stuff. It's to reach people for Jesus Christ. And envy is a problem not just because we've lost sight of our goal, we've lost sight of our role in the goal And our role is it's not just the pastors, but every single one of us as Christians that are called into ministry, wherever we are, whatever we are doing. And so the point of Luke chapter 14 is that our life is to be one big party of influence and impact for the kingdom of God, for people who can't pay us back, but people who desperately need Jesus Christ. Saul the king of Israel lost the envy battle. And he moved from self-pity and comparison and and, and resentment to attempted murder, first covert and public. Because instead of living for God's kingdom and submitting to God's control, he clung to his own control, his own kingdom, his own throne, and it killed him. It killed him. Our mission, my mission, your mission, is to reach people for Jesus Christ. And God has called you into a ministry every bit as significant, if not more significant, than mine. And the myth that there is this distinction between clergy and laity is an evil spirit sent from Satan. You know what envy is? 
Envy is the desire to blow out another person's candle. To blow it out. Uh, snuff it out. And envy will destroy us until we recover our goal and our role. And we are willing to lay down our lives that other people, as we throw this party by the way we live our lives, might know Christ, including the poor, including the crippled, including the lame, including the blind. And so what I'm saying is, we get all tripped up by other people's stuff and success. And the reason we get all tripped up by that is because we functionally have lost sight of our goal and our role. And this is precisely what I'm going to be talking about for the next five weeks in this Redeeming Work series. Now let me go on. We're close, but let's talk about the cure. Uh, what is the cure to a heart of envy. Well, let's go back to the beginning of chapter 18, where uh, we discover this interaction between Jonathan and, and David that is just beautiful. Now, Jonathan, you need to know, was Saul's son. So that means Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel. That means Jonathan, by rights, is heir to the throne of his father. And yet Jonathan has a polar opposite reaction to David uh, than Saul. Even though Jonathan knows that when David is made king, he will never become king. Let's pick it up in verse 3. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now there is no human reason why the throne could have not been passed to Jonathan following Saul's disobedience. Because Jonathan was every bit as spiritual, every bit as courageous, every bit a great warrior as David. Some have speculated that the only reason Jonathan didn't go after Goliath in the previous chapter is because his father, the king, wouldn't let him. Yet where Saul, the king, opposes what God is doing in David, Jonathan, the crown prince, sees it and willingly embraces it. So when Jonathan takes off his robe, now this is not an ordinary robe, this is the robe of the prince. When he takes off his robe and gives it to David and the robe symbolized the throne, uh, uh, Jonathan is relinquishing his right to the throne to David. When he gives David his sword and his bow and, and his belt, uh, and this guy's a fierce warrior, he's stating his submission to David and reversing roles because he sees and accepts David as God's anointed. Now you tell me a greater illustration of humility in all of literature. I mean, talk about submission. Uh, 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 talk about self-denial, self-sacrifice. So, uh, talk, talk about the relinquishment of public power and authority and position and prestige. Who does this? 
unlike his father. Jonathan gave up the greatest opportunity in his life to be the king, probably the thing that he wanted most in his life, to participate in God's plan. And I'll say it again, if God intended all your days to be easy, they would be. They weren't for Jonathan. So what is this cure to a heart of envy? Well, the cure is right here in verses 3 and 4. The cure is to look to Jonathan because Jonathan pictures Jesus. And in verses 3 and 4, we have this incredible picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, who on an infinitely bigger scale took off his robe. And Jesus gave up his throne and he became a man and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, as Paul says in Philippians. Furthermore, Jesus didn't just surrender his sword. He allowed himself to be killed by it because Jesus knew the only way we could share in his throne and live with him forever in eternity in heaven was to take off his robe, give up his throne, and to die a death he didn't deserve so that we might find a forgiveness, a righteousness, and eternal life that we don't deserve. So when you and I are tempted to envy, man, I want you to think about Jonathan because Jonathan pictures Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus. Lock your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. See yourself as deserving nothing. But Jesus taking off his robe for you, giving up his throne, loving you so much he was willing to be crucified in your place to rescue you from your sin. To see what Jonathan does for David is what Jesus did for you. Only it was worse. And by the way, 10 seconds, 10 seconds in the presence of Jesus Christ in eternity will wipe out 10 million lifetimes of pain, suffering, horror, and loss. So if you are here and you've never come to Jesus, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he has, has done for you, or, or you're here and you've been a Christian for 150 years, I don't know. Then there's two things Jonathan pictures. First, Jonathan pictures what we must do. Like Jonathan, you need to get off the throne of your life. You need to surrender to control. You need to lose control. That's why we've entitled this series, Losing Control. You need to surrender, not to David, but to Jesus. Uh, because Jonathan pictures what we must do, and he pictures what Jesus has already done for us. And so you must surrender your life, and then you must see Jesus as the one who came and gave up everything so that he could die and rescue you from the very thing that is killing you and robbing you of joy. I, I, I just find this passage incredible. To think that what Jonathan did for David, Jesus did for me. 
And if you've never done so, come to Jesus. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you continue to look to Jesus. And the wonder of his love, the wonder of his grace, this beautiful picture here of how much Jesus loves you. Because when we see this grace, when we understand the gospel, then we will live on mission, we will be clear about our goal, and we will give ourselves to the role. And you know what? Along the way, when you stand before the Lord at the end of your life, you will look back and your life will have been one big party for Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, this is amazing section of your word about a very practical um, Uh, relevant issue, this issue of envy. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would speak to us by your word. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we would get off our throne, we would give up control, and we would surrender control to King Jesus. And I pray now in his amazing name, amen.